Disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Every single person that I'm listening to, and maybe I'm listening to either the right people or the wrong people, but every single person I hear says, this is weird, this is speculative, this has echoes of mania, people are going to get hurt. So I think anybody who steps into this arena and decides to get in in this space, they should have their eyes pretty wide open about what's going to happen to them. Jay Yarrow, head of CNBC Digital on Markets, the return of the individual investor, digital media consumption, and much more. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to others. And follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. Joining me from a secure, undisclosed location, I imagine beneath a, a silo on the New Jersey Turnpike, 100 yards down, uh, because he is strategically key is Jay Yarrow, Senior Vice President for Digital at CNBC. He's responsible for setting the editorial direction for all CNBC digital products and services. You famously joined as a greenhorn from Business Insider, where you were the first of four or five employees. Did I get that correct, sir? I think that's right. I don't know about the greenhorn, but sure. Well, you were certainly a greenhorn when I met you, and I'm never going to let you live this down. Because, that, you know, that, now that's you're fine, and that's fair. And- that was a long, long time. Yeah. That was a long time ago. That was but a yes. long time ago. These, you know, it's like the cheek squeezing stories whenever I bump into you in Midtown Manhattan. But you were a young intern at Business Week. I forget, was it 2008, 2007? I want to say 2008. Yeah, it was 2008. Yes, 2008. And you went off to do exceptional things afterwards. Like, I, I didn't know you were in stealth mode. You were getting a journalism master's at NYU. You were. Uh, one of Henry Blodgett's first hires at, you know, first interns at Business Insider, where you became a, a high up uh, a- executive and then were recruited to run CNBC.com. And we were all just doting on you on the Twitters and the Facebook. I was like, darn, man, Jay, that was a meteoric rise. <laughs> well, uh, thank you. You know, I, I will say you and I worked together on a story. Uh, you you gave me a great idea for a story uh, that at the time, which is kind of funny to think about right now, was the New York Times. I forget what their valuation was at the New York Times, but it was maybe like six hundred million dollars at that point. Something pretty small, something small. Maybe it was, and, and I think it was CNET had sold for one point eight billion, I believe, to CBS. And and you were just like, I don't know why, but you wow. were, you were saying to me, you're like, how is it possible that CNET is worth more than the New York Times? And I was like, that's a great question. And so we started, I started digging in on it, uh, started doing this column about the valuation of the New York Times and how it didn't make sense. Wow. And uh, I don't know how much we're supposed to reveal in terms of sausage making, but this is years ago. It, it was, you know, I was just an intern and it went all the way up the chain because I think 
uh, one of the top editors at Business Week was married to a top editor at the New York Times. And I remember being like, oh, this is weird. Sure. And then John Fine was brought in uh, to be like a co-byline on it. Oh, uh, the media columnist. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I think he was, I, I remember bristling a little. You know, I was young. I was like, oh, what do I need this guy for? Yeah. But I, I love John and he was very helpful. Well, um, you certainly learned it's 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 ancient history now, but that's why our traditional you know business week under McGraw Hill wasn't long for this world. Soon it was you know racking up mass massive losses and being jettisoned to Bloomberg for a small sum. Yeah, I, you know, talk about metaphor when you're talking about old media versus new media and whatnot. But uh, you you were living it. Yes, indeed. Uh, and it's what did it sell for like five bucks plus assumption of uh, liabilities to Bloomberg, something along those lines. And another great footnote is I was looking at the financials of the New York Times company, which is really crushing it. Rarely, as as you know now, being a digital media executive, that they were maybe the only pure play newspaper company that successfully transitioned from an over-dependence on print advertising to convincing people, especially during the Trump administration, to pay and pay dearly for digital-only subscriptions. Yeah, it's been an incredible story. Um, I remember when Trump was elected president, I think the next morning I, I kind of quietly said in one of our editorial meetings, the, the real play is to get long the New York Times here, uh, because I think a lot of people were worried uh, that the, that Trump was somehow going to take away the New York Times, was going to shut down the New York Times, was going to uh, alter libel laws in such a way as to damage the ability of the New York Times to exist. And so to a certain extent, there was a, a moment where people were subscribing to the New York Times uh, as an act of resistance. But I think there's so much more to the story for the New York Times, just an incredible organization that produces such great work that uh, it makes sense. And I have to ask you that <clears throat> what, what was the war room meeting like when you realized that COVID was serious, when uh, markets were falling apart and, and the bond market was surging, treasuries were surging on this panic back in March of 2020. There's no way we could have seen, for example, Peloton or buy lumber, go long lumber or, um, you know, home improvement and these other secondary and tertiary effects of uh, what seems like ancient history right now. And certainly the Fed came in and bailed lots of things out, but you could not have gone back and kind of said, wow, this is the, this is the rational way to play a 100 year, once in a 100 year pandemic. You know, last year, remember the market was surging. It, it bottomed. Uh, when was it? It was like the end of March or so when it kind of really uh, bottomed yeah. and then and took off. And all through the spring and the summer, there was all this head scratching like, why is the market up? Why is the market up? Everyone was asking, Isn't, aren't things supposed to be worse? Why is the market up? I mean, the thing that we learn in this business of covering markets is to, you know, the, the markets are funny that they are always inherently right while also always being inherently wrong since they're always moving and changing. So all these people are confused, like, why is the market up? Why is the market up? Well, I think now you look at it and you say, oh, like, yeah, that makes sense. I, I, it's not like this doesn't make any sense. This, this doesn't work. It's, um, you know, did the market understand? I think the market maybe understood the Fed was going to step in. Uh, I don't know if the market necessarily understood the extent of how stimulus would play out, but the market obviously was sniffing something out. Uh, really sharp investors are sniffing something out here, and uh, we've seen it kind of take off. Now, uh, did you expect in any way that you would see kind of the, the resurgence of the individual investor, the likes of which we haven't seen since maybe the turn of the century and everybody having all this time at home, Robin Hood and everything like that's really what I'm curious about. No, I did not uh, see that coming. Uh, and congratulations to the team at Robin Hood for recognizing it and really taking advantage of that opportunity. Uh, pretty amazing. 
you know, one of your colleagues, Carl Quintanilla, tweeted this morning, uh, just famously, like in terms of like what kind of world we are living in. Carl Quintanilla, one of your uh, colleagues, has more headlines your 2020 self would not have believed. CNBC, Dogecoin is surging another 20% ahead of Elon Musk's appearance on Saturday Night Live. Uh, that's your headline, CNBC.com. One, what the heck? What does it have to do with Elon Musk? Dogecoin, what does Dogecoin tell us? And I guess, I mean, you're young, but aren't these like perfect anecdotes for books about euphoric investing bubbles and what the heck were we thinking? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. So one, I would say, it's funny, I saw that tweet from Carl, uh, and he said, he said, headlines you won't believe in 2020. I'm not so sure that uh, 2020 is the right year I would have used. Maybe give me 2015 or 2014. I think in, by the time 2020 was here, we kind of were ready to accept just about any headline. Uh, so there's almost, it's almost impossible to be too outlandish at this point, uh, and it was perhaps too, it was impossibly too outlandish in sure. 2020. We, we it had a lot happen, and we accepted a lot. When Dogecoin is soaring, uh, why is it soaring on the back of Elon Musk appearing on SNL? Well, Elon has been talking about Doge quite a bit on Twitter. Uh, and there's an anticipation that once he gets on SNL, he'll either say something or make some sort of subtle nod to Doge, which will push it further. Um, I think Mark Cuban was on uh, Ellen DeGeneres' show last week talking about Dogecoin. And I remember he tweeted, I'm going to be on Ellen DeGeneres' show and I'm going to talk about Dogecoin. And I sent a note to our team saying, hey, let's keep an eye on this and let's keep an eye on the price of Doge because basically he's going to a whole new audience uh, of people who are not following crypto or maybe don't understand crypto. Not that anyone seems to really understand crypto, but it's a whole new audience of people who would not necessarily be in the game. And when you have Mark Cuban, billionaire, tremendous success, celebrity, going on this and talking about Dogecoin, you know, people will be like, well, how much is it? Oh, it's 20 cents or it's less than a penny or whatever the crazy thing is. Like, yeah, I'll take a flyer on that. Yeah, why not? Why not put five or 10 bucks into it? And it's, and it's soared. And the more it goes up, the more success there is. And there's more, the more you're like, hey, why not? And when is you it, think about isn't money- Isn't that and, the very yeah. definition of, isn't that the very definition of speculation? I mean, if you were to get a press release from a Boca Raton, you know, Boca Raton boiler room, about these 20 cent stocks and everything. And if you could just get it up a couple pennies and these guys can pump and dump it, this just seems to be a more fun entertainment. Like everybody's in on the joke that Doge is Doge and we're trying to get in ahead of the next guy buying it. Isn't that the very definition of speculation? Uh, Sure, it is. Now what? So what? I mean, I know you were talking about this uh, on your pre on some of the other episodes. Uh, I was listening with Caleb. Um, yeah, I guess so. It, what's is this? Well, when you say so, I, what I it makes like me sound like an old man. Like I'm, you know, I, I, yeah, I'm not right. with the times. I, I and mean, everything. I guess like the, you and I have always had this banter. What is what is Dogecoin? What is Dogecoin? Why should it have any fundamental underpinning? Because everybody's in on the joke. I don't know. I it? mean, like, look, if you maybe it doesn't have to have financial underpinning. Like, why are people so obsessed with that? Like, what is the like? Can you tell me the exact right valuation of Comcast? Can you tell me the exact right valuation of Tesla? Can you tell me the exact right valuation of Netflix? You can't, right? These things have an emotional component to them. And, and I think people try to back into, well, what's the PE? And then you go on a historical PE and you say, well, historically, we should be at 18 times and all these kind of things. And you're trying to find, you're grasping at straws a little bit. And, and that's why when things take off, people get so frustrated uh and they're like well this doesn't make any sense like this is just this is nothing this isn't fair and it's like 
Okay. Like, yes, but like, if you want to be rational, you're in the wrong place. Uh, I don't like markets have some level of rationality to them, but they have a lot of irrationality to them. We saw this a lot with GameStop going nuclear, right? When GameStop soared, everyone's like, well, this is crazy. This just doesn't make any sense. This should not be happening. And you know what? The prices stayed pretty sticky uh, in a pretty elevated level. And maybe this is completely wrong. And maybe it's going to crater and go back to zero. Or maybe, uh, what's his name? Uh, Ryan, I'm forgetting, Cohen, I think is his name, uh, coming from Chewy, is in fact going to transform the company and, and grow into that valuation and beyond. You know, the market, again, the market is always right and the market is always wrong. And trying to fight it or think too hard about it is probably not a great thing to do. And I would say that I I hear what you're saying. Well, this is speculation and someone's going to get hurt. You know, particularly during the GameStop saga, you heard a lot of, this isn't like, you do not hear people, there's nobody out there being like, this is great. Doge makes a ton of sense. Get in on it. You can't miss. It's a great opportunity. I think every single person that I'm listening to, and maybe I'm listening to either the right people or the wrong people, but every single person I hear says, this is weird. This is speculative. This has echoes of mania. People are going to get hurt. So I think anybody who steps into this arena and decides to get in in this space, they should have their eyes pretty wide open about what's going to happen to them. And despite all the speculation, if you want to call it that, over the past year of everything that's happened within markets, you know, the media is usually pretty good at trying to find the sorry stories of people who lost their life savings. And they are out there. Most of those people acknowledge, hey, I knew what, what the risks I was getting into with this. But, you know, but there are people who make you super nervous. I think there's somebody, we wrote a story about a guy who like, bought a bunch of Dogecoin, like, took his life savings, and I forget, maybe it was like $18,000 at the time, put it all into Doge, and now it's worth a million. And he's not even pulling out like the 18000 just to get level at that. He's like, I'll consider selling it when it's at $10 million. So that makes, you, that makes you super anxious. But it's not like anybody's cheerleading these people on and not saying like, hey, this could end poorly, you know? Like, I think people are like, yeah, I know, but I'm going for it. So we'll see. Uh, but I think people are adults and are pretty well-informed. I mean, that's wow. one of the, there's some drawbacks. There's many drawbacks to the internet and social media, but one of them is there's lots of information out there and lots of conversation uh, and lots of people are aware of risk. Right. You compare, you compare this, this era, the individual investor back to the last time that, you know, the animal spirits were this powerful, let's say, 99, 2000. And it, that was a dial-up internet world, right? If you wanted to catch up on something, it was largely television. It was largely, I had to get home. I have to get to a kind of a Dell PC and pull up Yahoo Finance or AOL or one of, the, uh, you know, one, of those, one of those channels to see what was going on with my stocks. Now this is a mobile world. Now everybody's on a smartphone. People can pull up CNBC.com, Bloomberg headlines, tweets. You have to be on the lookout for tweets from Elon Musk or you know, CNBC echoing the possibility of Elon Musk saying something on SNL. There's just so much more information to process. Yep. Um, is there a... <laughs> Don't take this the wrong way, but what's the question? What's the question? Well, no, I mean, again, I feel so, I feel so old when I have you on. The multiplier effect of the information, right? It's, uh, it's, you sure. can't get I your mean, arms I, around the information yeah. nearly as... It, yeah, sure. It's, again, I, I, I swear I feel like an old man when I have you on. It's, it's that you have that effect on people. That's... Uh, <laughs> An incredible thing. Like a CNBC.com uh, back then was decidedly desktop, was dial-up. You know, yeah. now it's, it's, it's everywhere. It's going to be excerpted by your people and other people, people taking video snippets, putting it on Twitter, putting it on Instagram. 
I mean, I don't know. I I don't know what to think about that or how to approach what you're trying to say. I can just say that we are just trying to cover the news, look for stories, and try to be down the middle and provide information. And it is a, to your point, I guess a a a broader information net nowadays. Um, but trying to still like, I think that that's where we can provide a lot of value is sorting through there's reddit message boards and then there's like investors on tiktok and there's people talking on twitter and you could view it as a negative or you can view it as overwhelming or you can view it as i do as a great opportunity because there's a lot of really interesting people uh, having a lot of really interesting conversations throwing out a lot of really interesting ideas out there that for apparent you know for some people it's like they, they have jobs they have lives they don't have time to kind of go through all these different sources but if we can go through them and be pretty smart about filtering it and kind of bubble up the most relevant bits to an audience i think that there's great value in that full disclosure i'm robin farzad you're listening to jay yarrow he's senior vp and executive editor for cnbc digital where he's responsible for setting the editorial direction for all cnbc digital products and services jay uh i was thinking about you when I saw this kind of anticlimactic headline of Verizon Media, the old, you know, Bell Atlantic, unceremoniously ditching uh, Yahoo and AOL, which it bought for something like nine or $10 billion combined. At one point, it had the Huffington Post, and it took like a four and a half, five billion dollar write down. And then it sold all of it, I think, for something like four or five billion dollars to Apollo. Again, these are, you know, it, it was a completely different era, but at their peak, I think at the turn of the century, these companies combined were worth north of $300 billion. Wanted to get your thoughts on that. Um, obviously, a lot of your traffic is picked up uh, by Yahoo Finance. It remains very uh, powerful. A lot of our you know, former colleagues that we've pat- crossed paths with do editorial for Yahoo Finance. What are your general thoughts on it? Yeah. First of all, I don't think we have any stories on Yahoo Finance, so we don't really have any traffic uh, agreements there or have any kind of traffic connection to Yahoo, just to get that out of the way. Um, I think Verizon, you know, it's it's sort of in business. It's a classic situation where the previous CEO had sort of an idea, an inkling of idea and a strategy around, we're going to bring in these media assets. We're going to build something exclusive. We're going to use some of our data to sell ads and we can uh, bolt on an extra business. And you saw AT&T do this as well, except AT&T spent, what, $85 billion to own Time Warner, uh, Warner Media. And so they went... A ton of debt, yeah. Yeah, and they took on a ton of debt to do that. And it was sort of, I I believe the AT&T one was in reaction to not being able to buy T-Mobile. So it was sort of like, you can't go deeper in your category. Uh, So if you want to try to bolt on some growth, you have to go kind of vertical, you have to go adjacent to your category. And so yeah. same idea was we'll get this content, we'll have data, maybe we can use some of the information we have from our users to bolster the advertising, and maybe we can have exclusive premium content to make our AT&T subscription service seem more appealing. Uh, Verizon kind of was pursuing a similar idea, but at a much smaller scale mm. uh, by spending $10 billion on digital companies. So it was a lower risk to a certain extent. Uh, that CEO is gone, a new CEO is in, and the new CEO seems to be more focused on the core, saying, hey, I think I'd rather be a pure play, just a telecom, and they're spending billions and billions of dollars on 5G. And you can look at this in the market, like sometimes the market likes a conglomerate, and sometimes it doesn't like a conglomerate, right? And I think Verizon uh, has been rewarded for focusing on its telecom services. And the leader uh, of Apollo M&A, they were on, uh, who led the deal, uh, was on our air, and he talked about Verizon is, uh, I think, like a 240, he said, $240 billion company. 
to do what was required to really make uh, the Yahoo assets reach their full potential was something that maybe a pure play telecom wasn't interested in doing. And so their view seems to be uh, we can take Yahoo Sports, uh, which is a big thriving property, and make that a Yahoo Sports book. Well, if you want to do a gambling property, it's a lot of regulatory hurdles. It's a lot of effort. And if you're Verizon as a telecom, do you want to get involved in the reg- Like you already have enough to deal with from a regulatory perspective. Do you want to bolt on more regulations, more oversight, more challenges to get into the sports gambling business? Even if it's an absolute home run in that sports gambling business, I think DraftKings is public and is around $20 billion-ish in market cap. So even if it's just an absolute home run and you're as good as the best sports book out there, it's 20 billion. It's 20 billion. Like 20, we, I take 20 billion. I think you'd take 20 billion. Would Verizon get $20 billion worth of credit from the market, even if it uh, did a great job uh, in all the investment? And that's an, an unprofitable, like it's, you're going to have to spend a lot of money to get there. And so does, does the CEO of Verizon want to answer calls on every conference call about why are you spending like a billion or two billion this year to try and get into sports gambling again? Um, so selling that to Apollo and having them be able to go and drive that. Similarly with Yahoo Finance, they're, they talked about taking Yahoo Finance, big, strong, engaged audience. Mm. Can we take that and go into brokerage or crypto and trading? And again, the comp there, Robinhood. Robinhood, private company, will be public very soon. Probably like a 40, maybe more billion dollar company. Uh, again, so if they can go and execute, you take a five, like it costs them about $4 billion in cash. If they can execute on this, you're talking about a at just those two opportunities alone are $60 billion of opportunity based on public market comps. It's always difficult to execute. Yahoo is a funny property in that it still has a ton of users. It's been really attractive to Marissa Meyer. It was attractive to Verizon, and now it's attractive to Apollo. So there's something that is there. You can, it's hard to look at their, that user base, which, again, I think is about a billion users. It's hard to look at that and think, how oh, there's no value here. Like, it's just like, wow, there's got to be value. Can we unlock it? And you know, it's had kind of two leadership groups who uh, have not maybe fully unlocked the value that they thought. Maybe Apollo is going to be different, and maybe Apollo is going to be the one to do it. Uh, we, we will see. But but what about as an advertising foil to Facebook and Google? I guess that was just impossible at the end. It was such yeah, a that's impossible. Duopoly. That's a that's a yeah, that's a pipe dream at this point, right? Like the the Google, like think about Google, right? It's it's search. It's all that search data. They really like the Gmail uh, is an incredibly like was really sharp. Like was was a revolutionary product at the time. Um, but it, by creating Gmail, you log in. And then you tie it to YouTube, like email, search, YouTube, unbelievable trove of information and usage. And you basically can't use the internet without using Google. Like it's just, you know, we call the people talk about it being an open web. You're not using the internet and not touching Google. And people up and down the spectrum use YouTube for everything from, oh, I love golf. Like I watch videos about golf to videos that we create for CNBC to, oh, like I need to fix something in the house or I need to, uh, you know, I bought a bike and the, the company like will send me the parts to put it together. I have to watch the YouTube video that they've uploaded. So just this unbelievable, like, so Gmail has the, the receipt from the bike company that is in my inbox. They have the knowledge of me going to YouTube, 
to uh, look at the video on how to assemble the bike. And they had all the search history of me looking, doing bike uh, research uh, beforehand. So they have just an incredible amount of data. Like Yahoo did not have that. Even if you had a Yahoo uh, email account, it, you know, it dropped off because I wasn't going through a Yahoo search. Uh, and, and now because Yahoo is mostly media, it's contextual against that. And you can get some signal against context of what I'm interested in, but it's not equivalent. And, you know, again, same thing applies for Facebook where, you know, <laughs> Facebook talk about like a data machine. It's like, hey, t- tell me everything you like. Tell me everyone, you know, tell me everything you're interested in. And it's like, sure, we'll do. Uh, that is just incredibly valuable. Uh, and that just didn't happen on Yahoo. And that, that ship had sailed like a long, long time ago in terms of being competitive with them in that same level. Full disclosure, stay with us. This show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. You can follow the conversation on Twitter at Full D Radio, Instagram, Facebook Full D Radio. We're on LinkedIn, wherever you need me. Just holler. Get into my DMs. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Jay Yarrow, CNVC's Senior Vice President for Digital. He effectively uh, is, is the head atop CNBC.com, which has been seeing soaring traffic uh, amid the resurgence of the individual investor and the, the bull market during the pandemic. Give us, some, give us some statistics or anecdotes that kind of reflect how much people have been using CNBC.com and, and to kind of what new areas. Has um, it been in sports betting or, or crypto, obviously? Yeah, no, I, I think we've, we've grown tremendously. Uh, I think when I, I joined five years ago, uh, if you looked at us in Comscore, which is a sort of third-party service that measures um, all kind of digital traffic, we were in eighth place in our category, and now we're, sort, and now we're number one, like non-portal. Um, so we've grown a great amount. Um, you know, the past year has been an unbelievable news cycle Maybe not great for society. Well, definitely not great for society. Sure. Between uh, coronavirus uh, locking everyone up and trying to understand what this is, you know, um, to uh, what happened with George Floyd, the the kind of fallout and protesting that happened there, an election, an insurrection, uh, and then Reddit mania with GameStop. Um, you know, it's been an eventful uh, twelve months, and so CNBC. Covering that sto- those various stories has benefited by seeing uh, a big uptick in audience, but I think every media organization has. And frankly, like I think the world's catching its breath right now. Uh, it's a little bit slower, uh, which is probably good for all involved. You were talking earlier about you know the the misfit between kind of the, the Yahoo Finance, the Yahoo AOL view of the world, and Verizon, which is a massive wireless primarily company right now. Landline is 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 an afterthought. But I'm sure you get asked about your parent company, Comcast, quite a bit. Cord cutting is real, but more and more people this past year needed the the fat pipes from Comcast and other cable providers and other internet service providers to get the bandwidth that they needed for their kids to Zoom school, for them to Zoom to work and do all these things. How are you guys moving the needle for an empire as big as uh, Comcast, which has in the past kind of gone between pure play and 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 spreading out into kind of media as well this seems like a question that there's no good way to answer it there's, there's there is the question like how does jay yarrow operating cnbc's digital assets help uh comcast uh if that's your yeah. question okay, yeah a little jay yarrow yeah you're you're important digital is important digital has to sure. be embraced there are so many people 
I mean, yes, I, I still dutifully pay my Comcast bill every month. Uh, a large part of it is for the Wi-Fi that I need. I'm I'm on TV less and less. I'm on digital more and more. But we always heard the old thing about you know digital nickels replacing analog dollars. Uh, and so that's that's the kind of the, the question that I have. It's not like you guys are a pure play content company. You're owned by a massive cable distribution company. Yeah, I think we we contribute by like we have an incredible brand uh, in CNBC. It's an incredible business, uh, and the way we think about it is we just want to continue to extend that brand reach. Like this is very jargony, I, I understand, but we want to we we think uh, CNBC is in the category of business news. Uh, it's number one or number two, depending on how you think about it, just from a brand perspective. And we think that there's room to grow that, expand that, continue that reach into places like websites and apps and on Instagram and on Twitter and other places. And then, you know, the way that we monetize, we have ad sales and we have other pieces of the business that continue to do well. And we're not expecting to overnight replace like revenue, but the business has held up remarkable, it has held up really well. And it's a, it's a good business and we're just trying to contribute to it. Uh, let's get into some of these headlines that you guys have been covering. I mean, you saw that Peloton recall. I mean, that's that's pretty unbelievable news. This, uh, broadly speaking, pulling back that this this uh, relentless kind of melt up in the stock market, all risk assets. I was on NPR yesterday talking about lumber and the disconnect between lumber and timber. Um, what's kind of been on your your radar for the past few days that you think would be interesting for our listeners? Yeah, I think that kind of stuff, and I don't have an answer for it, so it's not. I'm gonna, I'll mention it, but I, I'm not going to have any yeah, insight. Yeah. I do think the like, the weird economy, right? That's how I'm thinking about it right now. I know, like last year, the buzz phrase was the K-shaped recovery, where it was the people up top were doing right. really well, and the people on lower weren't doing as well. I mean, honestly, I don't even know if that proved to be true. Uh, thanks to stimulus checks, it seems like. Obviously, if you're on the lower end of the economic spectrum, you're never going to be doing as well as the people on the upper end. The upper end are always going to be doing better. It's sort of like inherent to the idea. Uh, but I would say I think people at the lower end did better than maybe a lot of people would have expected. Um, but the the weird economy, like we just had a story last week about chlorine shortages, like that there's going to like so people have pools, like their price of the chlorine is going to go up. To your point, the lumber price is going up. Chip shortages, um, the challenge around finding. Uh, you know, like people are coming back, they're getting vaccinated, they want to go on vacations, but like hotels and restaurants are having trouble finding employees. So it is a weird, it's a, the economy. Yeah, is, there's this one headline, this one headline that caught my eye. It's like, this KFC looks to hire 20,000 workers as restaurant industry faces labor crunch. Uh, you know, un unpack some of that for me. That's something that you wouldn't expect. You, again, there's this, there's this uh, lag with unemployment benefits. Oh, yeah. I think it's going to be an interesting point. I think you, you've talked about this on your previous episodes as well. Inflation is going to pick up. Uh, prices are going to rise. But I think these are all positive things. I think, like, you know, what has been the story, the economic story of the, the sort of Obama uh, slash Trump bull run was when are we going to see some wage uh, increases? When are we going to see wage pressure, right? You, and you'd have all these people say like, oh, we can't find great employees. The question I always think about like, is like, well, how much are you offering these, these people? Uh, you know, raise prices, uh, like offer to pay people more. So we will see what happens. Uh, it's definitely a very interesting time because I think that the, you know, Jamie Dimon, uh, I think on earnings said something to the effect of the Chase consumers or chase customers have something like $2 trillion of fresh capital in their savings accounts or in their checking accounts, and they're coiled and ready to go spend it. So the world is came out 
you know, flush with cash somewhat uh, well, highly counterintuitively in this moment, and they're ready to go spend it. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Is it just an unusual time? Uh, Jay, what about uh, this this idea of kind of uh, somewhere to hide in terms of if you don't want to be risk on in this environment? Everything has so been inflated. Uh, you don't know if if bonds kind of provide that readout. You don't know if gold gold is a very distorted thing. We talked about the the shortcomings of Dogecoin and Ethereum and Bitcoin. Some people uh, you've you've seen real estate have a meteoric meteoric rise as people have adopted kind of satellite cities and working from home. And there's such a shortage of uh, new home formation. Where what's what's kind of a readout of safety other than cash? I mean, are there other things that you guys have looking at? I've I've read Scott Galloway in New York Magazine say that one of the frustrations about suppressing volatility, as the Federal Reserve has done in this pandemic, is it's kind of pushed people into creative asset classes like Doge or NFTs. I don't know what that even means. That that seems like nonsense to me. Um, what I would say is, first of all. If you're coming to me for investment advice, we're all in trouble. Uh, so we'll start there. <laughs> no, we're not. So good. We're not, but these are questions that you and your that you and your staff might be pondering, right? There used to be a traditional relationship: go into bonds, go into gold, you know, to write out volatility. But as you, as you said, everything has been distorted. Purell was distorted. Yeah. Pickles, chlorine, lumber, uh, and so it's it's very you know, like, hard to I, gain. I take kind a of, very like I guess I would say I take a. Uh, and again, I would not come to me for investment advice. Uh, I, I'm observant of the market, but uh, I'm not exactly an active participant. So, it, it, you know, this is a, a quick di- digression is legalized, like sports gambling became legal in New Jersey. So I have DraftKings and I have an app. And when you can't bet on sports, you think to yourself, oh my God, like this is so easy. Like, uh, how could you not know? Like, yeah, Nets are playing against the Bucks. Obviously, like the Nets are going to win that game. And, and then you're like, wow, they're giving me one and a half points on the game. I'll take it. And then they lose, right? Once you actually get skin in the game, you, you realize quickly how good or bad you are. So uh, that is to say, as a journalist covering business news, I am not uh, allowed, nor would I, you know, I'm not allowed to be going and making uh, individual names and calls and buying and selling uh, so I am very vanilla, uh, just S&P and some Comcast shares. That's what I've got. Um, so that said, you're, you're asking about all these things. I think the thing for that I always think about when everybody talks about this is like, what is your investment window? Are we talking about like, uh, do you want to be, uh, are we talking 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? Are we talking about six months? What are you trying to achieve? Are you trying to, like, what are you trying to, what is your outcome? So I think anytime you want to talk about investment, right? That seems to be a thing that that slides through the conversation. So, if you're a long-term investor and you should be, then just buy the S and P 500 index fund and just set it and forget it, right? Like I, I know this is like probably what all the people that are on your on your podcast say, and so it's probably like redundant and boring. But if you're worried about volatility or safety, no, but I don't like, ask. I don't, I don't ask for an. I don't ask for invest. I'm not asking for investment advice. I'm asking that the the the, the trick right in this economy. In this market, with everything inflated, is that the traditional uh, reserves of safety have kind of been again distorted? You don't know, like cash. You're worried about cash in an inflationary environment. Bonds. You don't think that a you know one percent one percent yield type thing. Yeah, I mean, like yeah, like a savings account is like worthless essentially. Like I forget what it was. <laughs> like it's it's like point something percent. Like even the high yield accounts now are like uh, a joke. 
Um, so it feels like the, you know, again, like it feels to me like the S&P 500 index fund feels like a pretty safe place to be, uh, would be my take on that. Uh, but I know you're supposed to have a mix and all that, but you know, that's, that would be my, my personal view. Well, Jay, close us out with observations. I mean, how, what, what really I'm, I'm interested in, you know, in you personally, your career development, uh, the meteoric rise of Jay Yer over 15 years and, and certainly the past year, year and a half must have, have aged and wisdomed you quite a bit. Uh, what is this going to look like? There are a lot of people out there talking about the roaring 20s. Uh, you know, you talk about the Jamie Dimon statistic and people just raring to spend the $2 trillion they're sitting on and everything. What are you bracing for? What are you telling your editors? What are you telling your reporters? Kind of, this is, this is something that we might not appreciate is on the horizon for the next two to five years. Nothing. It's so hard to do. I get that a lot. I get a lot of like what like a my um a question that I get a lot, which is like, what are we like what what are we missing? What should we be covering like that we're not? And I'm always, my answer to that is always like if trust me, I would tell you instantly. I'm not sitting here uh with uh sitting on great story ideas and just waiting for somebody to ask me. Uh as soon as I see something, I'd let them know. Uh and if I knew what was gonna happen, not to be too much of a smart aleck here. If I knew what was going to happen in the next five years, I'm not telling you and your audience. I'm telling our stuff, and they can come and read it on us. But I don't know. Like I think, like yeah, like look, the, there's been a conventional wisdom coalescing around the idea of the Roaring Twenties. So that would typically, when that happens, it, it proves to be wrong. Um, I kind of jokingly said on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, uh, I, we were promised Roaring Twenties, and it's a pretty dull Twenties so far. You know, it's a, a very tranquil period right now. Um, but I, I, you do feel that energy. You do feel the energy of people itching to get back and get out and go and have a good time. But I think, you know, somebody else asked me, um, you know, what have you learned in this past year of being locked down? Like what, and and like, I was like, well, I didn't, I'm being honest. I didn't learn like a ton, but I think what we're going to learn is like, we'll, we'll know a lot more. Like we will learn what we learned in the past year in a year from now, if that makes any sense, which is there's so much obsession with, you know, return to office. Um, So for those of us who worked in offices and had big teams, coming back to the office is the primary thing that's on the top of everyone's mind. Uh, And there's a lot of, I don't know if anxiety is the right word, but like sort of an anxious feeling around what's the right way to come back. I don't think any company necessarily has an answer to that. You saw Goldman Sachs yesterday say they want their employees back by June 14th. Um, And maybe that's the right answer. You know, Reed Hastings was asked, you know, what is the positive, like, you know, what's a positive for people working remotely? And he's like, nothing. It's all negative. Um, and but then there's like Facebook kind of saying like, hey, if you want to work remotely, you can. We're gonna maybe have a weird cap, like we're gonna lower your salary to kind of adjust it to the region you're in. Um, but in Twitter going remotely, so all these companies are taking different approaches, and somebody's going to be right, and we're gonna see. Uh, so I think that's going to be interesting. Um, and yeah, I think the is, is there going to be a roaring twenty? I guess sorry, what I that was a long and boring way of trying to say. The conventional wisdom is there's going to be this roaring 20s. But when you lock up for a year, uh, you form certain habits and you may be like, you know what? Uh, I'm not that. I actually am not wanting to go to the movie theater, right? Like we have just taken some level of demand out of the marketplace. And so if you had a view of 100% of the market, like if you movie theaters in 2019 captured 100% of the people who wanted to go to movies, um, is that are all of those people? wanting to go to movies in 2022 and 2023 
or has some level of, you know what, I went a year and a half without going to a movie theater. It turns out I don't miss it. And is it like 30% of that market comes offline? Same for concerts, same for going to bars. Like what, you know, I think there's a view that things will just snap back into place. When you change your behaviors, there's no reason to think you're just going to snap back and be exactly as you were. You, you may come back at like, some people will come back at 100%. Some people will come back at 80% and some people won't come back, right? And so the question is like, how is this all going to shake out? This has been a massive, uh, is trauma the wrong word? Uh, It's been a massive event though. Like, I don't want to know if traumatic is the right word, but it's been a massive uh, disruption to the way we lived. And just like anything else in life, you know, you think you can't live without a thing and then you live without it for a while and you're like, you know what? Maybe this is a better way. And so we're going to see a shake in how things change. Uh, and it'll be very, very interesting. It's just an amazing, you know, it's hard to experiment in life at scale. And so we'll see what happens. What about your masthead? Are you guys coming back fully? Do you have some time planned for the summer? Are you okay with remote? I mean, are you are you okay? Has it worked for you, kind of a combination of Slack and Zoom? What do you work for? What do you work for me? This is a question I get all the time. Um, so what I what we are doing is we're working through the plan. Uh, I'm happy to see places like Goldman and others go back and kind of watch them carefully and learn. We are, uh, as we have, we've noted, like a subdivision of a subdivision of a subdivision. So we are a small piece of a bigger organization. So we'll be kind of absorbing as much information and as many lessons as we can. We've talked about having a, you know, the network side of CNBC has had people going into the office because to put on a TV network every day, you need people in an office operating different pieces that have to be in person that you can't do from home. So we've had people being in. Um, our digital team has been all remote the entire time because they can, and we do operate through a combination of Slack is our primary kind of communication platform, but we also use Teams through Microsoft, some Zoom, some WebEx, uh, sometimes even the phone. Uh, so we've been doing that and that's worked uh, pretty well, uh, I would say overall, but every person has a different uh, situation in life and has to deal with things in a different way. Um, you know, we, we are trying to figure out do people want to come back in the summer? Some people like really want to get out of the house and want to go into an office. And so we're trying to figure out how do we safely accommodate them? You know, we're all paying very close attention to the path of the coronavirus and what happens there. We have an eye on fall for a return to work, but we want to make sure we're doing it like safely and securely. That is our top concern. Our top headline is making sure that this is safe for our employees uh, and there's no rush. There's no reward. You don't get you know, nobody's going to hand you a uh, a dollar bill for being like, hey, you guys were the first ones uh, in media, fully back in the office. Congratulations. Here's a buck. You know, there's not a lot of upside to rushing back. So we're, <laughs> we want to be very careful and respectful for our workforce. Jake, finally, you know, I have to ask you because I'm so curious about it. Newsletters. You hear a lot of our colleagues kind of decamping uh, to Substack. What do you think is the opportunity, the demand uh, what have you been hearing both from, from CNBC.com readers and some of your uh, staffers in terms of going off into that tangent? Uh, look, I think that it's a great opportunity for the right kind of person. If you can get there and you can, like, you know, I think it's hard to build an audience. It's hard to grind out day after day doing this. Um, but if you're motivated and you have something original to say, and you can build an audience, uh, I think that that's, that's great for you. It's like anything though, right? Like a bunch of people are going to try it. Some people will succeed and some people will wash out and that's okay. That's the nature of competition and business. 
and uh, markets, and that's how it's going to go. So I think it's a very cool opportunity. And if it it if it's right for a writer or a reporter, then I wish them nothing but the best. I, I think it's cool to see these various business models pop up. Do you get demand to package newsletters for, say, the the Wall Street clientele or specific verticals where? Um, you know, your curation is in demand and you get something in the inbox every day. I'm thinking of what Axios and, and Vox and others do. Um, yeah, we do a bunch of newsletters. We have a, a variety. We have some, we have Morning Squawk. We had, you know, uh, Kelly Evans did a great news, does a great newsletter. Uh, when she was launching her new show, The Exchange, she said, I want to go and do a news- newsletter. She does that. I recommend subscribing to it. We do a, a wide variety of newsletters our own selves. Yes. Jay Yarrow, CNBC's Senior Vice President of Digital. It's a joy to finally have you on. Uh, you're synonymous with CNBC.com and you're, what, five, six years there. You've won many awards. You've surged traffic. You've, uh, you've, you've taught the older, the olden folks there. And, and what, you're not even 25 years old. It's amazing. No, I, I, I kid. I'm proud of you. That's just my old-timey way of saying you've done, you done good, kid, uh, over 15 years. And um, clearly, you have your eyes and ears on on many newfangled trends. So uh, for what it's worth, I'm proud of you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that, Robin. Obviously, it all started with you. You and me, uh, Business Week, giving, uh, an unknown kid, oh, giving an unknown kid a tip, <laughs> uh, saying, hey, why don't you do this? And be like, really? Okay. Uh, and being very uh, generous and kind I'm sorry in that I sent regard. you down that route. No, it was great. I, I loved it. So thank no, you. but come back anytime. You're welcome to come on. All right. Well, thank you. And it's a great podcast. And thanks for having me. Thank you. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. Full disclosure podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, recommend the show to others, and follow on Twitter and Facebook at Full D Radio. Hello to our radio listeners in Arlington, Virginia, Washington, D.C., Ventura, California, and Asheville, North Carolina. Message me if you would like us on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week.